In early October 1918, there was not a single hospital bed available in the city of Philadelphia. They were all full of people, mostly in the prime of their lives, who had been healthy just days before, but who were now struggling for every breath. This sickness couldn't have come at a worse time, since many of the city's doctors and nurses had been sent to France for the Great War. And this was only the beginning. Soon, not only the hospitals and the doctors would be overwhelmed, but the morgues and the gravediggers. Later, when there was time to count the dead, it would be revealed that Philadelphia had the worst death toll of any American city ravaged by the worst pandemic in modern history, the Spanish flu. And it was all the fault of one man. Just days before, Philadelphia's public health director, Wilmer Crewson, had allowed the city to proceed with the largest parade in its history, where 200,000 people gathered to raise money for war bonds and to unwittingly spread the plague like wildfire through the entire population. If Crewson had listened to the warnings of medical professionals, all this death and suffering could have been avoided. That's the story anyway, but that story might be completely wrong. It's forgotten history. Forgotten History. I'm Deccan Hyatt. We are releasing this episode early, and if you are listening to this when it comes out, you will understand why. My guest is Dr. James Higgins. He is a history professor at Ryder University in Lawrenceville, and he specializes in the history of medicine focusing on Pennsylvania. In January, he published an article about the last time a major disease swept over the world, just as COVID-19 is doing right now. His article is about what happened in Philadelphia during the influenza epidemic that started in the last year of World War I, 1918. The scale of the Spanish flu pandemic was overwhelming. No person or place was left untouched. And it's hard not to draw parallels between what happened back then and what is happening now. I talked with Dr. Higgins over the phone. What happened um, in 1918, 1919 with the Spanish flu and how bad was it here in America? The epidemic broke out in... Uh, the late spring of 1918, and it was a, a mild spring wave. We like to say that it sickened a lot of people, but it didn't uh, kill very many. And then there's a quiescent period during the summer of 1918 where it's certainly moving from person to person, but at a much lower rate, and emerges probably in the middle or beginning of August of 1918 as a highly virulent uh, strain of influenza. The three major outbreaks that occur and kind of start off this disastrous second wave in the fall of 1918 uh, begin first in Africa and then in Brest, France, and finally in Boston, Massachusetts, and spreads out from, traditionally speaking, uh, we see this spreading out from Boston, Massachusetts, across North America, and within just a month or so, um, most even very small locales are completely affected by the flu. So it hunts into every small community and homestead in the country within 60 days or so. 
Uh, early reports offer a death uh, toll of about 550,000. A half century or so after the epidemic, um, we offer a death toll of about 675,000. But in my own research in rural areas um, that, that don't have much recording of mortality statistics, either at the federal or the state level, I'm relatively comfortable, and this is a very round figure, of course, but uh, suggesting that America loses up to a million people between 1918 and 1920, 21. Wow. And that's just in America. That's just the United States. Jeez. Um, so when people remember this epidemic, Philadelphia is often brought up. And what happened in Philadelphia in particular? Philadelphia is the third largest city in the country behind only New York and Chicago in 1918. And because it is an Atlantic port and because it has a multiplicity of manufacturing uh, plants, it becomes one of the centers of war production in the country. So Philadelphia swells from a population somewhere around um, a million and a half, uh, probably to almost two million people by the time the flu makes its presence felt in September of 1918. And one of the important things to remember about this generation of Americans, uh, and then you know, the generation that comes after them in flight World War II, is that they aim to pay for the war effort as that war effort uh, goes along. And so in other words, they're not going to put the cost off onto their children or grandchildren. So they accept higher taxes, new taxes, and uh, most importantly, they buy uh, liberty bonds. And liberty bonds are actually one of the major ways that uh, the World War I generation pays for the war effort. The first three Liberty Bond efforts had had a mix of success, but the fourth Liberty Loan Drive, which begins in late September uh, 1918, is the biggest of these drives. The fifth one was planned, but uh, never actually occurred because the war was over. And on September 27th, 28th, all over the country, uh, the war bond, the fourth Liberty Loan Drive, is kicked off generally by parades. Mm -hmm. You see these parades in large cities, and you can see these parades in even very small towns across the country. And in Philadelphia, um, the largest parade was kicked off on the 28th. And it is arguably the largest parade in Philadelphia's history, uh, winding um, several miles, about 23 blocks, from uh, North Broad Street to South Broad Street. And the general reports are that 200,000 people show up for the parade. It's probably much more than that. Um, tens of thousands of people are active participants in the parade. And I always suggest that the half of the city that um, didn't go to the parade met the half of the city that did when the parade ended. Hmm. The virus is already in the population at a relatively low rate, but it is there. And so the mixing of people, not just on the parade route, but in restaurants, saloons, theaters, sing-alongs, so on and so forth, trolley cars, then allows for the spread of the virus uh, between and amongst people very, very quickly. What kind of, a, what was Philadelphia like back in those days? How sanitary of a place was it? Philadelphia is 
you know, it's interesting. Philadelphia sometimes gets a bad, um, a bad reputation because we compare it to New York City, which is, you know, barely 100 miles away. And by 1918, New York City had had roughly a 30-year history of taking care of its sanitary and housing density problems. And Philadelphia uh, lagged behind uh, New York City. So it had uh, tenements. Those tenements tended to be two- and three-story uh, houses, not big tenement buildings like Chicago and New York City have. Um, people are closely packed together. There's been this influx of war workers. Many of them are living in um, terrible housing conditions. But at the same time, Philadelphia had had a history um, in the last few years, in part um, because of the, the work of Wilmer Crusen, of getting rid of cesspools, of increasing the amount of uh, homes that are hooked up to sewage, so on and so forth. So it really is a mixed bag. I mean, you can go through blocks of Philadelphia that are solidly working class or lower middle class. People are living in uh, row homes that are generally well-serviced and not densely populated. And you can go a block or two over and you can have you know, dozens of people. Uh, and the health department of Philadelphia chronicles this, not just in writing, but also in photographs. Uh, Southern migrants, uh, many of them African-American, from rural areas who are packed into housing, who are using slop buckets as toilets, um, whose food isn't very good, who are sharing mattresses, um, two or three people sharing the same mattress on different shifts every day. So there's a, there's a great deal of variety in terms of what Philadelphia looks like, in the same way that there's a great deal of variety today mm-hmm. in what you see in Philadelphia in terms of how people live. So into this city, the this parade happens and the flu spreads around. What happened next? What happens next is a uh, mortality. So we talk about mortality acceleration. We hear in the news today um, officials talking about well flattening out a curve. Well, of the largest cities in the country, Philadelphia has the greatest mortality acceleration in the next couple of weeks after the um, parade. So what happens first is you see a massive spike in people getting ill, right? And people reported ill for flu and for pneumonia. And then you can almost set your watch to it. Five to 10 days after you see that morbidity acceleration, you're gonna see that, that massive mortality acceleration. And it climbs almost like, when you plot it out, it climbs almost like a vertical line where now people have been sick for five, six, seven, eight days, and the dying begins. The next worst city in, the, in most of these studies, depending on which study you look at, is either Boston or Detroit, and they tend to be three or 400% more shallow of an acceleration mortality than Philadelphia. So Philadelphia clearly is in a class by itself. And what did that look like on the ground when so many people were dying all at once? it looks like uh, the city comes apart. So of the three worst hit major cities in the U.S. in 1918, they're all in Pennsylvania. And by rate, it's Pittsburgh, Scranton, which is actually a major city at the time, and then Philadelphia. The difference is both Pittsburgh and Scranton have a drawn-out period of uh, epidemic influenza. 
Philadelphia is, is largely confined to about a 45-day period. And so on the ground, you get what I tend to refer to as a traffic jam. First, everyone gets sick. Hospitals are quickly uh, overcome by the number of casualties who are coming in. And then the dying starts. The city morgue, private funeral homes are also overwhelmed. And so you stack bodies, and then this traffic jam extends to the cemeteries. You don't generally have steam shovels. Um, you know, backhoes that are driven by internal combustion engine is almost non-existent in 1918. So most of your graves are dug unaided by hand. And a six or seven foot deep grave, eight feet long, three or four feet wide, takes two men the better part of the day to dig. Grave diggers themselves get sick, and they also become ever more fearful of the contamination from these bodies. And so the bodies start stacking up at the cemeteries. In terms of what you're seeing and what you're smelling, we have newspaper accounts of uh, bodies that are laying in a morgue for seven or eight days. We have hundreds of bodies that we know from the records of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Philadelphia and the newspapers and the Department of Health that are laying in private homes for five, six, seven, eight days. Um, fathers and mothers who cannot in their minds part with the bodies of their children are putting them in bedrooms, putting them underneath tables, masking the smell with tobacco or perfumes and just kind of existing in a situation where their closest loved ones are moldering in their small apartments around them. Wow. Uh, so after this story gets out and uh, eventually the story is remembered by history more than a century or almost a century later, um, you know, right. pe people can see that this parade turned out to be a bad idea. And uh, there's one person in particular who gets the blame for holding this parade. Uh, could you tell us about him? Sure. It's the director of the Department of Health, uh, Wilmer Krusen. And Krusen is, for most historians, until the turn of the 21st century, a relatively minor figure, um, as are most health directors in most historians' uh, narratives of the flu. And so... This isn't a virus or a bacteria that's spread by unclean water, which by 1918 should be um, you know, utterly uh, outside the experience of most urban Americans, right? We know that you've got to filter and chlorinate your water. Um, we know that when you have a case of smallpox, then you've got to start to vaccinate the people who are coming into contact. If you have cases of diphtheria, you use the antitoxin that's been on the market for the better part of 30 years. But flu is an airborne virus. And the general common wisdom has been, well, we would expect a director of health to take, you know, basic precautions. Um, but once a virus gets started, it's very difficult to stop it unless you're using what we call today social distancing measures. And Wilmer Crewson really comes into play as a bad guy in narratives in the early 21st century, when a number of historians, both popular and scholarly, begin to hone in on him and his 
allowance of the Fourth Liberty Loan Parade. And the general wisdom runs like this. The virus is there. Cruson knows the virus is in Philadelphia. It's certainly in the Naval Yard, and there are an increasing number of people who are showing up for care at the local hospitals. Well, let's back up a second. How did the virus first arrive in the city? Generally speaking, uh, the wisdom has been that in the first week of September, a contingent of 300 sailors was sent from Boston to Philadelphia. And so the virus first broke out in its virulent form in Boston on the 27th, 28th of August. And so 10 days or so after that occurs, we get a large contingent of sailors that comes down to Philadelphia. But um, in my own research, and when I was doing this research specifically uh, with respect to Crucin, I see young men who are dying very rapidly of what naval doctors are codifying as influenza and even codify Spanish influenza, which is kind of the catch-all uh, phrase for this epidemic, uh, a few days before those sailors even make their way down from Boston. So it is probably being brought in by sailors either from ships coming in from Europe or from men who are coming down from the, the large installation at Boston, but before anybody knows that an epidemic is about to break out. Sure. Right. So as far as anyone knows, it, it is just in the naval shipyard at the point where they had the parade. Um, there, there's some crossover into the civilian population. Just like mm-hmm. today, no large military cantonment can take care of itself. There are always what we call today um, civilian contractors. And so there's interplay between them. And so it has moved at a relatively low rate into the civilian population. Mm-hmm. But what we're not getting is a flood of people into hospitals. Cruson probably knows that this this number of people with flu in civilian population is going to rise. But at the same time, um, he is tasked also with making sure that the city itself, its manufacturing, its military installations uh, continue with this war effort. And so Cruson himself is in this kind of catch-22 between, well, do I attempt to shut down this city um, or do I attempt to ameliorate uh, what's going on with this virus in the city? So did he have the power to shut down the parade if he had wanted to? On paper, he has the power to shut down the parade. The problem is... Uh, most historians who have addressed Cruson haven't gone to the state laws. And it's the state that formulated the Department of Health and Charities in 1903 for the city of Philadelphia. It's a state charter. It's not a city charter. And part of that charter uh, says that the director will serve uh, unless the mayor deems him unworthy of serving anymore. In a sense, you can be hired and fired for any or no reason at all. And so on paper, you have the right to shut down the parade. If you do, I contend, you're going to be immediately removed from that position or the mayor's gonna override you and say, no, we're not doing this. You're not shutting down this parade 
Um, it's the largest gathering in our city's history. We know it's going to be the largest gathering in our city's history. It's showcasing the city. This parade is going on. Did, did anyone warn Cruson or the mayor that th there was potentially a, a catastrophe in the making by holding this parade? Historians have tended, um, a couple of historians in particular, tended to say that he was warned. The problem is they've never offered any source material that, that points a historian like me to a piece of paper, a letter, a warning, a telegraph, anything that says, okay, on the 25th of September, three days before this parade is due to kick off, I am warning Wilmer Crewson about the dangers of this parade. The closest you get to it is a letter from a Dr. Anders, who by the turn of the 20th century uh, was a respected uh, physician and public health advocate in Philadelphia. But there are kind of two problems with pointing to Anders. One, the letter that he writes isn't, as far as I can tell, to Cruson himself. It's to a newspaper. And the newspaper publishes it on or a few days after the parade anyway. And B, Anders himself has fallen out of the mainstream of science. And so some of his um, public writings, some of his scholarly essays, sound like they're a throwback to an older generation of physicians that is blaming not just bacteria, but other environmental um, poisons, if you will, for a lot of diseases. But I've never seen a historian say, okay, on this day, this person warned Cruson. It's never come up in the records of the Department of Health. It's not there in the records of the Council of uh, Philadelphia, the City Council of Philadelphia. And I've never seen a historian offer a cited piece of evidence even once in the last 20 years. Hmm. Oh, after the outbreak began, what did Cruson do to organize the response to it? Before it even begins, um, on the first uh, day of the, the pandemic, you know, this kind of post-September 28th period, he actually opened his first emergency hospital on the 28th of September. So the day of the parade, he opens one of uh, will ultimately be at least 10 emergency hospitals around the city. And he fully uh, comports with the state's uh, ban on crowds and extends that ban on crowds to Philadelphia schools and all houses of worship. The state ban orders localities to crack down you can be fined, you can be arrested if you have a, a crowd, if you're selling alcohol, but it leaves the locales, uh, whether or not the local authorities, whether or not they want to close down houses of worship and schools. Well, for his part, he closes both of them almost immediately because he understands that people are in schools, in houses of worship, they're packed together, um, and he knows that this, this pathogen, they don't know it's a virus, the virus is kind of a theoretical um, pathogen at the time. They think it's a bacteria, but they understand that it's it's airborne, it's respiratory in nature, and so you can't have people, you can't have school children packing together, you can't have worshipers at synagogues, at mosques, at churches packing together uh, on the weekend. So he closes all of that down. But probably his most important moment comes 
when he elicits the help of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And so in most uh, histories of the outbreak in Philadelphia, there's a pretty good amount of attention paid to a group of women, upper middle class or elite women, who come together, they kind of divide uh, the telephone exchange and they help to decide, well, where an ambulance should go, so on and so forth. But it's, it's an organization that is not just ad hoc. Um, they spend about a day, as far as I can tell from records, arguing over who is going to be in charge of what. Um, and, and they don't have really the manpower behind them. When Krusen gets in touch with the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Philadelphia, um, he says, look, I, you know, I need help. And I don't have the manpower. You know, a third of our doctors are in the military. They're not even in Philadelphia. Um, and the Archdiocese replies and says, well, this is what we'll do. We're going to put uh, seminary students and 3,000 nuns at your disposal. And what's important about these two groups of people, the seminary students from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary and the nuns, is that they're part of a top-down hierarchical institution. And they don't argue about who's in charge of what. Crewson says, okay, I need you know, a couple of dozen seminary students to go dig graves and, and frankly, mass graves at this cemetery. Oh, okay, we'll get the telegraph out there, and they're going to be loaded up on buses or trucks, and they'll be sent out, and they'll start going immediately. Okay, well, I need a dozen nuns to go to, you know, emergency hospital, you know, number one in the Holmesburg uh, prison and indigent home. Okay, well, we'll send them out. They've got a mother superior, and they'll take orders from her. And so there's no arguing. There's no bickering. It's just done. And he works very closely with the archdiocese to clear out the city morgue, to get the burial straightened out, to um, police up the emergency hospitals, and to add the weight of especially nuns to the hospitals, the regular hospitals of the city. Mm -hmm. um, what was Krusen's background before he became public health director? <clears throat> Krusen was a... Um, well, he's a gynecologist, but it's it's a lot more than that. He's been unfairly characterized as kind of an amateur public health person. And, in fact, he graduates from uh, Jefferson Medical College in the uh, 1890s. And then he goes into work at St. Joseph's Hospital. He becomes one of the early leaders of Temple University School of Medicine. And he also, and this is important, um, becomes affiliated very quickly with public health uh, efforts in the city of Philadelphia. And so he works at Philadelphia General Hospital, which most people are not familiar with today. But at the time, uh, it is the largest charitable hospital in the entire country. And it, it, the remains of it now are in... Uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And so he has a long history of working with uh, public health efforts in the city of Philadelphia. 
after the Spanish flu outbreak was over, did he continue in his role as a public health official? He continues in that role, and then uh, he retires from uh, the directorship of the Department of Health. He becomes uh, closer then with Temple University uh, School of Medicine. And then there's a dispute with respect to the Department of Health and uh, Philadelphia General Hospital. Philadelphia General Hospital wants more money, but they've got a director of health that is kind of going toe-to-toe with the mayor. The mayor can't stand him, a new mayor. And at this point, Krusen transitions into working uh, as a president at the Philadelphia uh, College of the Sciences. And the mayor approaches him and says, well, what I would like you to do is to become the, the director of, of public health again. Mm-hmm. And Krusen says, I'm happy to do that, but I don't want to give up the presidency of the university. And the mayor says, okay, so does city council. And at that moment, Krusen gets more money for Philadelphia General Hospital than that hospital had ever gotten uh, before in its history. And by rate of interest, more money than it'll ever get again. So he he sounds like he was in good standing in the community and had a good reputation then after... The mayor, upon his second appointment, says that uh, this is not simply a a testament to Wilmer Krusen's uh, attributes. It's actually a testament to the new mayor's attributes in that Krusen is willing to work with him. Mm-hmm. And most of the the movers and shakers in both public health and private medicine in Philadelphia uh, will have a testimonial dinner when Krusen is reappointed. And there is absolute unanimity in terms of the approval of Krusen. So what do we miss when we go back in our hindsight and blame Krusen for this outbreak rather than examining well, I, other reasons? I, I think there, there are a couple of reasons. One, um, there's sloppy scholarship, and that's, that's the fault of historians. Um, you know, just it's much easier to go through newspapers than to, you know, take the time and the money and go into your archives in Philadelphia, and a lot of it is located in Philadelphia. If you're not accessing it personally, then you have to pay to access it because somebody's going to have to make the copies for you. And that's not by any means an insurmountable barrier, but a lot of historians or popular historians will do a newspaper survey. Well, okay, well, we've had this epidemic. We know that there are people who are sick, and you will just pray to go off anyway. And you're not putting the time that you need to put into this person, their life, and their role. Um, and that's, that's just, that's part of it there. Secondly, a lot of people, you know, we like simple answers. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I say in that article, um, you know, you look at New Orleans and it's easy to say, well, you know, we had a, a FEMA director who wasn't the best FEMA director. Maybe he shouldn't have been um, the person in charge. At the same time, you've got a state and a city, Louisiana and New Orleans, that are watching their dikes and their levees 
and their pumping systems deteriorate for decades. And they look around for the federal government to do something for them. Um, Houston, just a few years ago with Harvey, um, you know, not much of a state system for emergency management. You wait for the federal government and the guys of the Coast Guard and FEMA and so on and so forth to come and rescue you. You, you know, you can put the onus on just one or two individuals for any catastrophe. And, you know, I think it's easy to kind of smack your hands together and say, okay, that was the problem. That individual, now we've gotten rid of that individual and we've cascaded that individual and we don't have to make systemic changes here, mm -hmm. right? We don't have to make systemic changes. Systemic changes tend to be expensive, they tend to be complicated, and they tend to take a while uh, to complete. And if you can just tie up your story to Philadelphia's uh, awful, awful outbreak with, well, we just had one incompetent uh, director of health who just didn't know what he was doing, it makes a story digestible for people, especially when we're talking about uh, popular historians. As we record this, I, I believe we are both working from home. Yes. Because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Yes, uh, obviously COVID another world historic pandemic event. Um, it, do you think that what we're going through right now is comparable to the Spanish flu? And are there lessons that we can learn from the experience of Philadelphia during the Spanish flu? In terms of where the virus is going to cover on the, the surface of the world, then I think it's comparable. Um, I don't think you're going to have uh, an area really that is going to be free from this virus. And maybe in the next two to three years, essentially everybody who's alive will have been exposed to it, just as they were exposed to H1N1 in the period 1918 to 1921, 1922. In terms of, of death, no. Um, the, the pandemic of 1918, 1919 kills more people uh, than any uh, war or outbreak in the history of the world. Um, in fact, what I tend to tell people is in the United States, if, if you look at your community, whether it's a small community or a large community, the worst thing that ever happened to it, with very few exceptions, is the epidemic of 1918. And the only exceptions are places like Johnstown, Pennsylvania, that suffered this awful uh, flood event in the 1880s. But other than that, the worst thing that will have ever happened in your community including the deaths from the civil and uh, the world wars, will have been the flu epidemic of 1918-1919. But we can pull examples and we can pull lessons from what this country is experiencing right now. Uh, yeah, you and I are working from home. Um, we are cut off from friends and neighbors in a way perhaps not as uh, drastic as 1918 because we have email we have social media, we have telephones, um, cell phones especially, but there is a loss of community uh, without a doubt. I also think that a very important lesson that we should draw is the danger that pathogens still pose in this world. And I think most Americans just sort of take for granted that I get sick and if I need the help of a doctor, or I need the help of a a physician's assistant or a nurse, it's there, and it's it's gotten in very short order. Um, that's not the experience of many Americans, of millions of Americans, who don't have health insurance. And 
I think that what we're going through now may very well lead to discussions about what we need to do to prepare for future pandemics. It's not a, a matter of if, uh, but when. And what we can do to shore up the everyday health of our communities and our families and individuals in our families and communities. Um, we may look back on this period and say that there's quite a bit of community spread that is caused by people who don't have health insurance and are afraid of you know, taking the cost of a test on. And so they're just going to try to you know, cross their fingers and not go and be tested. And they're shedding the virus and they're not self-isolating because, you know, because they can't, uh, they can't afford it. I think that our individual community health and public health, which is for most people an afterthought, um, who cares about public health? You know, I've got health insurance, I've got a doctor, and when I'm sick, I go to the doctor. Uh, right now, our number one weapon against this virus is public health and listening to public health officials. Um, you know, the individual doctors and nurses who are treating people who are sick in the hospitals are, as uh, Governor Cuomo said, they're doing God's work, but they're treating individuals. It is public health regulations and listening to public health officials that will really slow this contagion down and save lives, not by ones and twos and, and tens and twenties, but by hundreds and thousands. So d and that's something that we haven't cared about since uh, the early part of the 20th century. In this context, does it make more sense to think of health as a societal problem rather than an individual problem? Certainly, mm -hmm. certainly. And, you know, the, the people staying home, uh, as bored as we can all be, um, as monotonous as this becomes, and because the enemy is invisible, um, I, I think there's a, you know, there's a, uh, a chance that our imaginations kind of tell us, well, it's not as dangerous as we think. We can't see it. We can't feel it. We can't taste it. We can't touch it. But knowing that going out in the community um, has a possibility not perhaps to affect people uh, too terribly who are in their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s, but to put our parents and our grandparents uh, in real danger, our neighbors in real danger, and saying to ourselves, well, okay, I'm going to take that step for the good of my entire community. And I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to watch television or read or cook or do whatever it is, but I'm going to stay put and take that responsibility on my shoulders not to infect other people. Quarantining has only become uh, a kind of uh, odd feature of the American community since World War II and antibiotics. But before that, homes and entire blocks were quarantined you know, every summer when you'd have breakouts of polio. And every winter, when you had breakouts of diphtheria and other contagious diseases. And because we don't have those constant reminders, those yearly and even monthly reminders of the danger of pathogens, uh, we've, we've forgotten about them. Dr. Higgins, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. There's one more local connection to the story. In addition to hosting this podcast, I'm business editor at the weekly newspaper, US One. My boss, Sarah Hastings, is the managing editor, and she happens to be the great-granddaughter of none other than Wilmer Krusen. If you want to read more about this topic in detail, Krusen's article was published in 
the January 2020 issue of the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, and it's called An Epidemic Straw Man, Wilmer Crewson, Philadelphia's 1918-1919 Influenza Epidemic and Historical Memory. If you want to hear more interesting and obscure stories from this area's past, subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to help more people find the show, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. If you have questions or feedback, you can email me at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com or visit the Forgotten History Facebook page. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Berendon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.